Hey everyone, this is Glenn Greenwald, and I uh, am live in my debut show here on Colin. I'm very excited to be here. I uh, am particularly excited about the potential that this platform affords, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what I think this platform can do um, for the journalism I've been doing, for the community I've been building for my journalism, why I think that it is an incredibly important new addition to this ecosystem of independent journalism that is growing. I just want to spend a little time talking about that, uh, offering a few observations on a couple of key news events for the week, um, including the ones that I indicated in the title, the significant retractions by the Washington Post on two important Russiagate articles, the ongoing uh, trial of Kyle Rittenhouse and a lot of the media deceit surrounding it, as well as some really alarming FBI subpoenas that were issued to uh, the founder of Project Veritas, James O'Keefe, and to various uh, Project Veritas uh, employees, both current and present, and what the dangers are. But I want to leave the vast bulk of the time to the Q&A feature of this app, because to me, that's the thing that excites me the most. Um, I did a video on Rumble a couple of days ago, I believe on Wednesday, when it was announced that along with a bunch of other people uh, who I think are incredibly interesting voices and important voices in journalism, like my good friend Matt Taibbi, the former press secretary to Bernie Sanders, Brianna Joy Gray, um, Antonio Garcia Martinez, who had a job at Apple that he was fired from before he started because his novel offended some of the woke factions, uh, the Canadian journalist Andre Domis, and a bunch of other people who are moving to Colin. Um, I did an article, a video on Rebel explaining why I consider this platform important and what I intend to use it for. So I will refer you to that. I won't repeat that all. Um, it was a fairly short video. But the basic idea of it to me is the interaction that it enables both with my readers, with people who aren't necessarily my readers, but who have come into contact with journalism I've done, or with critics um, or people who are critical of my work or have questions about it. And the reason I think that's so important probably stems from how I began by doing journalism, which is I did not begin in this conventional way um, of going to work at the New York Times or going to Columbia Journalism School or working at NBC, thank God. Uh, I began in 2005 by just creating a blog, just hitting create blog on this then free software called Blogspot that I believe was owned by Google. And as I built my audience every day, I would write an article and then I would go into the comment section of the article and I would interact with my readers. There'd be people there who were very excited to tell me why what I had done was great. There were people even more excited to tell me why what I had written was wrong. There were people there who were telling me that there was other things I had overlooked, other evidence that can make my work stronger. And I realized that was an incredibly important journalistic asset. So many of the stories, the important stories I did when I began writing were enabled by my interaction with my readers, people who would say, hey, you should take a look at this, or this interview happened on television and you should go watch it. Um, or this piece of evidence is out there that people haven't noticed. But I also found it very gratifying and very fortifying to have to confront critics, 
that I wasn't just speaking in monologue form the way journalists had done for decades, where you kind of write an article and never hear from anybody about it, don't have to answer any questions, confront any critics. That was the old model of journalism. And what blogs did and what online journalism did was at first enabled and then actually required journalists to hear from their critics, to hear from their readers, to engage with their readers in a way that I think is vital and healthy and an incredibly important form of accountability. And there are different ways to do that. I have a comment section on Substack that I try and engage with as much as possible. When I do live videos on Rumble, I can see comments floating through the screen in this very ephemeral way. Some of them are hard to get. Um, But those are just kind of posted comments, posted questions. What this platform does is it enables any of you in the room listening to indicate that you want to ask a question. Once you do that, it will automatically put you in the queue. And very shortly, I will just be in sequence um, taking questions or hearing comments from anybody who wants me to address something. And rather than just being this kind of, you know, rumble-like typing of a question that floats by on the screen, it can actually be a sustained conversation, which not only is an important form of accountability, but I think is really crucial to removing complex topics from the cauldron of social media and just enables better engagement, more substantive conversations with one's readers, with one's critics, and a lot of other people. So if you have questions, if you want to ask me things, if you want to you know, raise points about any of the topics I've mentioned I'm going to about talk about quickly, um, definitely get into the queue and we will shortly start that part of the show. So I want to talk about these three uh, topics that I indicated I'm interested in, in commenting upon just briefly. And if you want to comment on that or other topics, you're not confined to the three that I've chose, I've chosen. And I'm doing, I, I picked these three because I haven't written about them. I haven't spoken about them. So it's a good opportunity for me to address them. First of all, the I don't know if many of you saw the news because it really happened within the last several hours, but as many of you probably know, there's an ongoing investigation, a criminal investigation under the auspices of the Justice Department by Special Counsel John Durham, who was appointed during the Trump administration by Attorney General William Barr, but now is being overseen by Biden's Attorney General Merrick Garland, which means everything he does, every indictment he issues has to be approved by Joe Biden's attorney general. And he's investigating whether there was criminality, not in connection with Russiagate itself, as that scandal came to be known. That was Robert Mueller's job. And he closed his investigation and indicted nobody on the core charge of uh, whether Americans or members of the Trump campaign criminally conspired with the Russian government. He not only issued a report saying evidence wasn't found to establish that conspiracy, but criminally charged nobody. This is a separate investigation that's designed to ask whether there was criminality on the part of the people who concocted and created and disseminated that investigation, that Russiagate scandal. And so far, John Durham has obtained three highly consequential and revealing convictions slash indictments. In January, a FBI lawyer pled guilty 
to the obviously serious crime of lying to the FISA court by altering emails in order to deceive the FISA court into allowing the FBI to spy on Carter Page, an American citizen who had been affiliated with the Trump campaign, an incredibly serious crime in the middle of an election year for the FBI to get caught lying to the FISA court so they can spy on an American citizen working for one of the campaigns. That was the first guilty plea he obtained. The second one was about three weeks ago when he indicted David Sussman, who was Hillary Clinton's lawyer, who was central to manufacturing the fraud that was disseminated by friendly Clinton uh, media figures that Trump had this secret clandestine uh, server that he was using to communicate with a Russian bank, Alpha Bank. And David Sussman brought this to the FBI and lied to the FBI by claiming he was just a ordinary citizen concerned for his country when in fact he was there as the lawyer for the Hillary Clinton campaign. And that indictment walks through with a key role the media played in disseminating that lie. And then by far the most important indictment was this last one that took place last week in which uh, someone named Igor Dabchenko, who is a Russian national living in the U.S., who was not one of the most important sources for this Steele dossier, but was the most important source for the Steele dossier. Um, He was the person who essentially provided uh, much of the information that ended up being uh, broadcast in, in the Steele dossier. And he was indicted on multiple counts of lying to the FBI, specifically lying about where it was that he got his information. Um, and that essentially means um, that uh, that essentially means that this Steele dossier, which so many key parts of the corporate media helped to ratify, is now proven to be false. The uh, person who was indicted, Devchenko, uh, didn't have deep sources within the Russian government. He was essentially picking up speculation from the public and most amazingly of all was using as one of his sources a public relations executive who has long worked for the Clintons. So it was not just a document, the Steele dossier, that the Clintons paid for, but it was actually a document that they themselves provided the information for. And the Washington Post and numerous other media outlets claimed in 2017 that they had quote-unquote confirmed that one of the sources for the Steele dossier was Sergei Milman, a Russian-American who has deep ties to the Kremlin. And as it turns out, Milman never even talked to Devchenko or had any role in the Steele dossier, which means that so many of the media reports that vouch for the Steele dossier in 2017, saying that these media outlets confirmed independently that Sergei Milman was one of the sources for Christopher Steele was completely false. So you can go read articles from the Post, ABC News, CNN, saying that they confirmed this was true when in fact it was completely false. And ever since this indictment was issued, the question has arisen, when are these media outlets going to own up to the fact that things that they said about the Steele dossier, key facts that they reported, were obviously false. And no one has done that until today. 
when the Washington Post issued two extraordinary retractions on articles published in 2017 and 2019, in which they uh, essentially retracted huge parts of the article and admitted that the article that they had published, the two articles where they purported to have confirmed things about the Steele dossier, were in fact false. And there's an article in the Washington Post by their media reporter, Paul Fari that is headlined, quote, the Washington Post corrects and removes parts of two stories regarding the Steele dossier. And it describes what it calls, quote, the unusual step of how they did it, that they didn't just issue an editor's note or retract it. They actually took down the article, radically rewrote the article, and then republished it in light of this indictment. And the uh, article itself in the Post says, the Post decision to edit and repost the Millman stories is highly unusual in the news industry. Mainstream publications often add corrections to public stories when credible new information emerges. Some publishers also enable readers to petition them to remove unflattering stories from their website, but it's rare for a publication to make wholesale changes after publication and to republish the edited story, especially more than four years afterward. And they quoted a journalism professor and historian at American University, W. Joseph Campbell, who said, quote, no such case comes immediately or specifically to mind, at least no historical case that stirred lasting controversy about whether this ever even happened before in modern journalistic history. The magnitude of the fraud of Russiagate, the media fraud, my colleague, at Substack, and now my colleague here at Colin, Matt Taibbi, has called it this generation's WMD to convey what a fraud it is, is so great. And it hasn't even begun to yet be processed that these news outlets like the Washington Post are now having to engage in extraordinary retractions of what, let us remember, is by far the story that dominated the headlines and political discourse throughout the Trump campaign and into the Trump presidency, which was Russiagate. So much of the criminality, so much of the fraud took place not by the people who supposedly colluded with the Russians, according to Robert Mueller, there were none, but by the people who concocted and spun and disseminated this conspiracy theory, both in politics, in the security state, and in the media. And I think these two retractions from the Washington Post today are going to put enormous pressure on other media outlets to do it and will really start to make people understand finally how much of a disgraceful debacle this was on the part of corporate journalism, the role they played in endorsing this wild conspiracy theory about Trump and Russia that was cooked up by the CIA and the FBI and disseminated by the Democratic Party, Clinton operatives, and the corporate media. So I find today's retractions by the Post incredibly significant. The other issue I wanted to discuss is the trial in uh, Wisconsin that has received an enormous amount of media attention, which is the murder trial uh, in which the defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse, now 18 years old, faces several counts of murder and attempted murder for the shootings that he admits he did in the wake of a protest in Kenosha, uh, Wisconsin in August of last year, following, well, following first the killing of George Floyd by the Minneapolis Police Department, 
and then the shooting of James Blake in Kenosha, uh, Jacob, Jacob Blake, rather, in Kenosha by the Kenosha Police uh, Department. And what I find so fascinating, I mean, the, 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 the Rittenhouse trial is itself so fascinating for so many uh, reasons. Um, before I was a journalist, I was a lawyer and a courtroom lawyer. I didn't do criminal law. I, I did civil litigation, but I certainly spent a lot of time inside courtrooms with judges. And so for a lot of people, this is their first really intense immersion in what a trial is like. Oftentimes, trials are not uh, televised. Federal courts don't televise trials. So usually trials take place with very little pe- few people seeing what's happening in state courts around the country. Television cameras are allowed. That's true in Wisconsin. So you get to watch the entire trial. And it's amazing to watch people in real time see parts of the judiciary and the judicial system that usually remain hidden. But the much more interesting part to me is the role the media played in concocting a narrative about this event, this episode, who Kyle Rittenhouse was, what he did, who the people were that he shot and killed or wounded, because there have been so many people, and I don't mean people on the right, I mean liberals and leftists, who are indignant and feel betrayed because as they've actually sat down to watch the trial, and a trial is a very time-tested and rigorous way, not a perfect way, but a rigorous way of ensuring that the truth emerges by evidence being presented and testimony being offered in the most reliable way possible, so many people are realizing that the things they were told to believe by the media outlets they trusted about who Kyle Rittenhouse was and what he did are radically different than the reality. Which isn't to say that you have to think that what Kyle Rittenhouse did was noble You don't even have to think that he should be acquitted or that the acquittal is an easy call. Maybe you don't think that. And there are a lot of people who don't think that, who nonetheless are realizing that the things they were told about what happened was not remotely true. I think probably the most interesting angle of this all was that from the beginning, it was asserted without any evidence at all that Kyle Rittenhouse was a, quote, white supremacist terrorist, and that essentially he had gone with the intent to shoot as many people as he could in order to advance his white supremacist ideology. And there are people who are shocked to discover that all three of the people Kyle Rittenhouse shot, the two that he killed and the one that he wounded, are white. So you essentially have a white defendant. There are some police documents, probably speculative, that describe him as being Latino, but he's white. He, he himself is white. It's a case of a white defendant who shot no Black people, no Latinos, no Asians, no Muslims, three white people. And yet somehow the dominant narrative of this case from the beginning was a racialized one. It was that this white supremacist terrorist crossed state lines, by which they mean he drove 20 minutes from his home to a place across state lines where his father had lived, where he had spent a lot of time, where he identified 
with that community as his own in order to help protect businesses from the looting that was going on. And the people that he ended up shooting were all the same race as he. And a lot of people are shocked by that because they assumed or were led to believe that he was out on purpose shooting people who were Black. But the other, I think, even more interesting aspect, and I personally had not commented on the Rittenhouse case at all, because as somebody who has worked inside courtrooms and who has covered complicated criminal cases as a journalist, I know in cases like this, where there's a lot of things going on, where there's many different videos, where you can only watch snippets, that you're never going to really get the full idea of what happened until you sit and watch the trial. This process that has been developed over centuries, first by Anglo law and then American law to present evidence in the most reliable manner possible. I knew that until I watched the trial, I really wasn't going to be able to formulate an opinion about what happened that I trusted enough to publicly opine as a journalist. I had an idea from watching the videos about what I believed happened, but I really wasn't willing to pontificate or opine until I was able to see the trial. And having watched the trial, the fact that has become the clearest by far is that Kyle Rittenhouse did not shoot anybody who did not first in some way attack him. Now, some of the people who attacked him might have been doing it with good motives. They might have misperceived that he was an active shooter and they were aiming guns at him or running up to hit him in the head with skateboards or trying to shoot him because they thought that he was a danger to everybody and they were risking their own lives in order to stop him. But they're not on trial. So their motives, essentially, their real motives aren't relevant. What matters is his perceptions, what he intended, because his argument, he's not obviously disputing that he shot the people. His argument is he did it in legitimate self-defense because he had a reasonable ground for believing that the people he shot were posing a danger to him. And the fact that all three of the people that he shot were people who, in the first instance with Joseph Rosenbaum, first threatened to kill him and then ran up to him and tried to take his gun. And then the next two people that he shot were people who themselves were armed and pointed the gun at him. Makes it seemingly clear that he wasn't looking to indiscriminately kill people. He had seen protests like this in which people they perceived as their ideological enemy were beaten into a pulp or even killed. And he felt, as a 17-year-old, genuinely frightened for his life and shot in order to protect himself, shot as few people as he could in order to let himself get out safely. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you can't object to or question or condemn him for choosing to go to what is obviously a tumultuous protest armed with an AR-15. He may be found guilty on a minor misdemeanor gun charge because in the state of Wisconsin, it's illegal uh, or in the state of Illinois, in Wisconsin, to, it's illegal to own an AR-15 if you're under 18 as he was. His defense is he didn't own it. His friend owned it on the agreement that he could use it. But if you compare what you were told over a year by the media, 
that this is somebody who went there looking to kill people out of white supremacy. And you compare it to the indisputed facts that emerged, including the one survivor he shot who admitted that he wasn't shot once his hands were up in the air. He only was shot by a Kyle Rittenhouse once he pointed his gun at him. It's almost impossible to imagine how a jury could conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that he's guilty of murder, something that if you were only listening to the media for the last year, you would never have thought was even possible. And the more things like that happen, the more extraordinary retractions like the ones we saw from the Washington Post take place, the more people watch a trial and come to realize how much they were lied to by the media, the more faith and trust in the media, which is already at an all-time low, is going to continue to erode. And I think that's actually a good thing because these media outlets are now almost overtly in the business of deceiving and propagandizing and lying and spreading narratives at the expense of the truth. And the more people who realize that, the better. And that's the reason why I think platforms like this one and the other ones that I'm using, like Substack and Rumble, that are devoted to guaranteeing the right to have an ideology to express views without worrying that you're going to be censored because you have the wrong opinion are so crucial. And it's the reason these media outlets are so devoted to controlling and censoring platforms like these, because they know that allowing people like me and so many others who have found an audience to say all these things I've been saying about what they're doing is jeopardizing their brand, their ability to be trusted, their stranglehold and monopoly over how people think and how they understand the world. And that's why they're so hostile to these platforms, why they try and malign and demean them and ultimately try and even shut them down or get them censored. So we can certainly talk about the Rittenhouse trial in further detail if you want, but that's my overall impression. The last, I see there's a cue, so I'm excited by that. The last Uh, topic I just want to briefly touch upon before starting to take those questions um, are these very disturbing subpoenas that were issued over the last week by the FBI to various people associated with Project Veritas, the right-wing group that whatever else you think about them, does investigations, disseminates true information. Not all of their reporting is accurate, which is pretty much something you can say for all media outlets. Um, A lot of what they do is controversial, but clearly they're in the business of finding out the truth that's hidden as best they can and reporting it to people. And even if you dislike some of their tactics and believe some of their reporting is dubious, as I do, it doesn't make them any less protected by the First Amendment. The First Amendment free press clause, freedom of the press clause, isn't available only to a cloistered group of credentialed people called journalists. It protects an activity, which is the press, that all citizens have the right to engage in without having that right infringed. And yet the FBI and someone in the Justice Department, maybe Maine Justice, maybe rogue prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, decided that they were going to not just issue subpoenas, but execute search warrants at the homes of people associated with Project Veritas, including James O'Keefe, take their cell phones and try and find out as much as they can about this group and who their sources are, specifically in connection with the 
uh, acquisition of a diary by Joe Biden's adult daughter. Now, again, Project Veritas is very polarizing, but the principle is what matters, which is you don't want the FBI, in this case, a Democratic administration, being able to target journalists who are oppositional politically and ideology, ideologically by breaking into their homes with search warrants and taking their cell phones. And even more disturbing, there were some really sensitive documents, communications between Project Veritas and their lawyers that leaked to the New York Times. I don't know whether the New York Times got those documents through the FBI, but what I do know is that even nonpartisan uh, press freedom organizations like the Freedom of the Press Foundation, which I helped co-found with Daniel Ellsberg and Laura Poitras and John Cusack and others, the executive director, Trevor Tim, Trim, Tim said, look, I don't really like Project Veritas, but this is a very disturbing precedent. Ben Smith, the former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, now the media columnist for the New York Times, said no journalist should be cheering for this because of the chilling precedent that this can set. And I think the most important part of this story is that one of the most crucial things is we need to learn, once again, how to apply principles and think about precedent and principles independent of the question of whether we like the person involved. So if you read about the FBI issuing subpoenas and seizing the cell phones of James O'Keefe and other people with Project Veritas, and your first question is, do I like Project Veritas? Do I think their reporting is good? Do I think their politics is good? In my view, that's exactly the wrong way to think about it. That's what results in polarization and an abandonment of principles and a refusal to apply rights equally. The question we have to ask is, are we comfortable with the precedent that's being set that the FBI has the right now to go and seize the cell phones of journalists? Because if they do it in a case where the journalist that's targeted is one that you don't like, you're not just cheering for that. You're cheering for the underlying principle or power or precedent that can then be used against journalists that you do like as well. And I think learning how to think that way again is absolutely crucial to overcoming this oftentimes insurmountable obstacle to at least coming together in defense of common principles, regardless of how different our politics are. So those are my observations about these three news events. I'm happy to talk about those, but I'm happiest above all to have this opportunity to begin hearing from people. So I'm just going to go right in the order of the queue. Um, and just take the first question, which is coming up right now. Okay, I think I've done that. Go ahead. Hello, Glenn. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Hi. Thank uh, you for being our first caller. I know. It's an honor. Thank you. Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the, your three subjects, I'm wanting to hear more, I'm particularly around Russiagate. But I guess my first question is going to just be around this new platform, Colin. How's it going to work? Can you tell us how, how much are you going to be on it? 
And how is what's the monetization plan for this? Like, how is this app gonna? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to think carefully about uh, is to make sure I'm now obviously using different platforms. I use Substack for written articles. I use Rumble when I want to do video reports. I obviously do use Twitter as a way of promoting various things, including my own work and other people's work and weighing in on debate. So I wanted to make sure that I had a clear idea of how this platform is going to fit into the other work that I'm doing so that I'm not competing with or cannibalizing these my other platforms, but I'm kind of strengthening it and, and figuring out ways to fill in the gaps. And one of the things I realized is that when I write on Substack, I tend to write very long 2,000, 3,000 word, heavily researched articles that are fact-checked and have to be you know, researched by my research assistant and then edited. It's a lot of work. It's intended to be a kind of standalone written reporting. Um, the, uh, and, and you can only do maybe one or two of those a, a week at most. Um, which leaves a lot of room for other things that I want to weigh in on um, that I can't just write two to 3,000 heavily edited articles on each day. So the idea with Rumble was that would be a different kind of platform um, for me to weigh in in a way that doesn't require lengthy articles. And what I found is that the best way to do that is with also well-researched video reports where we compile evidence and use graphics and use videos and do kind of in-depth video reporting, which also takes a lot of time and was still leaving kind of a gap. And what I concluded was there were times like these three topics today, Russiagate, Rittenhouse, the FBI subpoenas, when I want to weigh in on them. And I was realizing that if I didn't want to write a long article about it, if I didn't want to do a heavy, heavily produced video report, I was basically confined to the sewer or the hell or the cauldron, whatever you want to call it, of Twitter. And I wanted to find a way to kind of be able to comment more quickly, more frequently um, on topics that arise. And this seems to be an ideal way to do that. You just have to pick up your phone, announce 15 minutes ahead of time that you're going to do it. People on the app see it and you're able to just go in and have these kind of conversations. So for me, it's just a different way of being able to weigh in on issues where I want to weigh in on. And then the interactive part, as I said, is really crucial. Um, you know, I'll leave it to Colin to, to answer all the questions about exactly what their plans are. As of now, it's available on iPhones or I guess iPads as well. Um, shortly, my understanding is it will also be available to Android users and on the web, which means it will be universally available to everybody, which is very important to me. I don't want to just speak to people who have iPhones. That's going to be the case only for now. Um, the idea is once we're done here, it doesn't just disappear. It gets saved. So anybody can go listen to it, including people who will just have access to it on the web. It'll be saved like any other podcast. People can listen to it well after um, it's done. And it's entirely free. There's no... Um, from what I understand, advertisers, there's no, obviously, all of you know you signed up free. And I believe that's the intention is it's designed to get as many users as possible. That's the monetization model. But again, I'll leave that to Colin to talk about. Um, but for me, that's that's the journalistic model that I um, was was most excited by. 
So let me take the next caller, uh, who I think is Cameron. Cameron, are you there? All right, let me try. There's always a little bit of technical difficulty on the first try. So let me try the next person who I think is Jenny. Jenny, are you there? All right. Let me hold on one second. I'm just figuring this thing out, so just bear with me for a second. Um, let's see. I think I just invited um, the next person to speak who is called No. Let me just see what's going on. I'm just getting a little assistance. Um, hold on one second. Okay, let me see. Just bear with me for one second. I apologize if I've skipped over anybody in this attempt to figure this out. I think I have one. No, are you there? Yeah, no. That, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, great. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just wondering. Um, you're really excited about these other platforms, and I am too, as a huge fan of your work. Um, but it seems like a lot of the platforms you're jumping to, like Rumble and. Uh, this one likely and others um, still suffer the same centralization problem that ultimately um, could be a, a problem if these platforms grow to any particular size. Do you have any concerns about that? Why are you so confident that like these kind of problems uh, that Facebook suffers from, for instance, uh, wouldn't happen on these platforms? Yeah, um, that's an important question. And it's one that I spent a long time, a lot of time asking the people who founded these various platforms myself, which is, it's very easy to say that you're committed to a framework of free speech, and I believe that you are, but so were the founders of Facebook and Twitter and lots of other social media companies that ended up 
engaging in heavy content moderation or censorship. But the reason they did was because media outlets like the New York Times and CNN and NBC started using their gigantic megaphones to pressure those platforms to start censoring by saying, you have blood on your hands because you're allowing misinformation by allowing debates over vaccines or COVID, or you have blood on your hands because January 6th happened because you allowed all kinds of extremism to flourish on your site. And how is it that you're going to resist this extremely formidable social pressure generated by media outlets to say nothing of the political pressure that's coming from the Democratic Party when the CEOs of Google, Facebook, and Twitter are summoned to Congress, the Democrats are explicit about the fact that if they don't start censoring more aggressively, they're going to face legal and regulatory reprisals. So that's a gr- the question that you just asked me is one that I asked them. And what they say, all of them, is we are fine. You know, the reason we're founding these platforms is because we're as aghast as you are about how the internet is being converted from what it was intended to be, which is this empowering device that enables people to speak freely and to explore ideas into one of centralized coercion and control. And if we weren't ready to have those fights, we wouldn't have started these platforms. Now, I've seen some test case of it. You know, there was an attempt a few months ago to claim that Substack was this platform for kind of like anti-trans, bigoted, culture war uh, conservatives. And they there were some specific people targeted claiming they should be removed. And Substack issued a very strong statement saying, that's not what we're here to do. We're not here to decide which ideology is best or what is true and false. We're here to offer people a platform to let the public decide. Rumble has been maligned in similar ways, especially since we moved there. And there was a big article in the Washington Post claiming that they're a sewer of misinformation and the like. And there's been no increase at all in the content moderation. And I've spoken with the people who uh, run Rumble, and they seem very committed to the idea that having a free speech model is not just good for society, but also for their business. And I think the same is true of the people who found a call-in, which doesn't mean there aren't going to be content moderation guidelines, but it's not going to be used as a pretext for silencing particular ideologies or ideas or stifling debate. Now, the question, the technical question is, well, Parler, for example, was very committed to those ideas for sure. They were true believers. And yet what happened to them was they were vulnerable because they relied on the Apple store and the, and the, uh, and the Google store and on Amazon web services. And overnight, those three monopolies united to destroy uh, Parler's ability to operate. And I don't want to divulge any kind of details or secrets, but I can tell you that ever since that happened, Everyone who's committed to ensuring that they're not subject to the whims of big tech have been very thoughtful about how to immunize themselves from those kinds of attacks, from that kind of dependency on big tech. Now, we may have to wait until 
blockchain and crypto and other kinds of decentralized protocols arrive and thrive for us to have full and complete protection. But until that happens, all I can do is try and ensure that the people with whom I'm working, the people whose platform I'm lending my name to, are as deeply committed to these values as they claim to be. And in each of these cases, I'm convinced that they are and that they're not just committed in words, but are working to ensure that that's going to happen. So if you if if you have a response, you can you know feel free to to, to chime in. Um, otherwise, I'm going to try and move on to the next person and see if I've figured this out. Oh, yeah, cool. I have a quick okay. follow up if that's all right. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, just a thought. It's kind of tangential, but um, what if, what if uh, also there's some, this sort of um, in practice there's like a de facto capture by a single I- ideology that isn't that doesn't run you know. Uh, like aligned with yours, for instance, would that be something that would, that would frighten you? Like if, uh, for instance, no, okay, sorry. Go, well, give me an example. What did you have? What example well, like did if, you have? If, if, if Rundle, if like Rumble truly became like the home of like Nazism, is that, would that push you away? For instance? No, um, it wouldn't. And, and, and the reason is, is because, you know, Nazism exists in the world. Um, and I don't, I've now, you know, one of the reasons why I've, I've been an opponent of censorship is just on principle. I think it's too dangerous to allow institutions to police discourse, but I also just think it's ineffective. It's kind of like torture, right? Like the torture debate, you're against torture because it's immoral, but also because it doesn't work. People say whatever you want to have them say to stop the torture. I don't think censorship makes bad ideology go away. I'm already on Twitter and Rumble and Substack and now call in with people who have ideologies I find highly disturbing, people who are imperialist or corporatist or militarist or who have a wide range of ideas that I find noxious. And I think if I were to say I'm only going to be willing to use platforms where I'm insulated within a range of opinion that I find comfortable, that would be incredibly anathema to my role as a journalist, but also to the work that I want to do, which is find the places where people think differently than I think, not who already think the same that I think in order to have the opportunity to reach them. Now, that doesn't mean that if any of these platforms decide, you know what, we just don't want to allow, say, somebody arguing for the reconstruction of concentration camps or race science or whatever, that I would instantly run away as a at, on the grounds that that's intolerable censorship. I think that what I want to make sure is true is that the platforms I'm using allow a very, very wide range of discourse and debate. For me, as wide as possible, but I can tolerate some kind of on-the-margin content moderation decisions as long as it's really not a way of smuggling in ideological orthodoxy. Um, so thank you for that exchange. Let me try and move on now to the next caller who I think is Jim. Um, actually it's Jay. Um, I think I might've skipped over Jim by accident. Um, Jay, are you there? 
Jay, are you able to yep. weigh Hi, in? Buddy. Can you hear me? Sorry. Okay, great. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm just figuring things out, but um, go ahead. I can hear you. Great. Um, thanks for taking my call. I, uh, I really like the platform. I think it's a really cool idea. Um, and I basically, I wanted to ask, I'm a big fan of your work. And I was talking with a friend at dinner last night, and we were actually talking about, you know, where the United States is going to go kind of in uh, in the wake of COVID in terms of, you know, just sort of people's willingness to continue to go along with things like, you know, mask mandates or potential vaccine mandates. And we were sort of talking about it um, contrasted with uh, the 9-11 era and post 9-11 and just how how rapidly with COVID we've come to a place where we're really questioning institutions and questioning um, authorities with, you know, uh, when it comes to, you know, these, these, these sort of um, mass movements that it seems like larger governmental institutions are getting behind. And I work in public education. And a, a while ago, I had heard a, a, a talk between Howard Zinn and a professor of education just regarding historical education and, you know, iconoclasm in the classroom and, you know, the dangers supposedly of, of inculcating cynicism in youth. Um, and I just am wondering your thoughts about, you know, where we're at in the United States specifically. Uh, and are you at all concerned about like reaching a tipping point where we move from sort of fostering a healthy cynicism to really more of like a complete disintegration of any sort of faith in any institutions? Or do you think that tipping point's already happened? And if it has, I mean, um, I guess, where do we go? Because it's... Uh, yeah, that that's kind of like what what do you see and and uh where do we go if we have already reached that tipping point? Yeah, it's a great question because you definitely want to avoid both extremes. You want to avoid the extreme that everybody blindly submits to and places their faith in and unquestioningly obeys the decrees and orthodoxies of institutions of authority. That's an incredibly frightening uh, conformist society that in general tolerates no dissent because when the ethos becomes that your duty as a citizen is to submit to and obey authority, those who refuse are viewed as dangerous or heretics or, or worse. But on the other hand, as you suggest, it can be dangerous as well to have this kind of nihilism, this view that authorities are always lying, should always be distrusted, that their statements should always be disbelieved and should always be, and should always be rejected. And before assessing toward which end of the extreme we are, and on some level, we might be at both extremes, just in different camps. The one thing I would say about that is I don't think you definitely a healthy society is a society in which the citizen replaces some degree of faith and trust in institutions of authority. You want people to view institutions of authority as trustworthy with a crucial caveat, which is assuming they are actually trustworthy, that they are worthy of trust, that they have demonstrated their right to be believed. If institutions of authority have proven themselves to be untrustworthy because they're acting with motives other than 
disseminating truthful information instead to deceive and propagandize or for some other motive, then on, on in no circumstance, in my view, is it a good thing for the citizenry to trust institutions of authority that are corrupted and deceitful. And so I think obviously there's a lot of erosion in trust and faith in, in, in institutions. You can see it in the data and probably anecdotally every day. Trust in media is at an all-time low. Very few people hold Congress in any kind of high esteem. You go through every institution, almost except for the military, and very few inspire trust and faith among the citizenry. And that's clearly a problem. But for me, the reason is, is because you go back and look at the behavior of these institutions over the last 20 years, beginning with the war on terror that quickly morphed into an invasion of Iraq based on false pretenses that were ratified and endorsed by almost every major institution, which obviously is going to erode trust, followed five years later by a financial crisis that was triggered by the financial experts we were taught to revere and the financial ideology we were told would bring prosperity to everybody was triggered by Wall Street. And then we watched our government act in defense of them rather than the citizenry that was suffering. I think that radically eroded trust. And to this day, the financial effects of that are being felt. And then you look at things like what happened in the Trump era, whatever you think of Donald Trump, the disruption that he brought, the transformation of institutions that he engendered in opposition to him. And as I began by talking about the amount of propaganda and the amount of false claims that are emanating from news media outlets. And I think that you can understand why there's an erosion of faith and trust and not just understand it, but at least in my view, regard it as valid and healthy and necessary. Um, you know, one of the alternatives when faith and trust in institutions erode is to try and reform them, but that requires some assumption of responsibility on the part of those institutions to engage in self-critique, and I don't think they're doing that. Another alternative, though, is to create new centers of power and new centers of institution that do inspire trust, and I think this emergence of this kind of new media ecosystem of independence you know, you can kind of for shorthand call it like Roganism, right? The fact that this guy who used to be an MMA commentator and a host of a reality show has become for millions of young people the most trusted voice in media signifies to me that there's this hunger, not for nihilism, but this hunger for institutions that they believe have earned their trust because so many have it. And just one last thing on, on the COVID aspect of this and what it reveals is obviously there's a good segment of the society that has come to distrust what used to be pretty trustworthy institutions like medicine and science and the CDC and the, inst- the agencies led by Dr. Fauci and the World Health Organization. And there's been an erosion of trust in them for reasons that I think are also valid, similar to why the media has lost trust and faith. But I also find this very disturbing 
conformity that has been revealed by COVID, this idea that whatever institutions assert at any given moment becomes not only the orthodoxies that we're duty-bound to accept, but are so indisputably true that we can't allow dissent to them or questioning of them. The CDC says to put on masks, people put on masks. The CDC tells you to go get vaccines, you go and get your vaccine. The CDC tells you to go get a third one or to get your kids vaccinated, you go and do that. The CDC tells you to stay at home, you stay at home. I'm concerned that even if there are valid justifications to it, that the scariness of this pandemic, and it was scary, at least in the beginning, a a novel virus by by its nature that we don't understand that we can't treat or have a vaccine for that's killing hundreds of thousands of people around the world and spreading rapidly is going to be scary. That fear, like we saw after 9-11, produces this heightened trust in institutions based on the view that that's the only way we can be safe And I'm really worried that it has trained people into a kind of conformity, stay at home, avoid other people, don't go out and protest, wear masks long past the point when it seems rational to do so now that you're fully vaccinated, try and pursue zero risk. These kinds of lessons that I think are going to endure in ways that are pretty harmful for the foreseeable future. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, just one follow-up on what you said about the sort of Roganism, so-called. I mean, if, if independent, me- independent media and um, Roganism uh, sort of present uh, a way out of the situation that we're in, doesn't that also sort of present a kind of troubling question about whether or not you want people like Rogan or you want journalists to take a more active role? I mean, isn't their role to be sort of presenting information, reporting on information, rather than sort of leading a change in society, I, whether or not you think it's, it's for, the, for the good? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to purport to speak for Joe Rogan's audience. I feel like I got a good amount of insight when I did his show. I'm going to be on his show in person shortly, as soon as I can, the next time I'm in the U.S. Um, but I paid more attention to it and to him and have spoken to him. And I, you know, I see him as kind of a symbol of these things we're talking about, not the only um, expression of it. What I think that people are looking for when they, when I say that they trust someone like Joe Rogan is not this kind of Pope-like figure who issues encyclicals that we now trust instead of, say, Walter Cronkite. I think what people trust about Joe Rogan and people like him is exactly the lack of hubris that they believe they're capable of issuing those sorts of decrees that instead what they want to do is instead of narrowing the range of opinions to which people are exposed, expanding the range of opinions to which people are exposed and then curiously and with an open mind. If there were a did to tell people what was going on in the world, 
you probably wouldn't need that. There probably wouldn't be a market for it. But I just know myself as somebody who works in journalism and kind of sees and understands how the sausage is made, probably better than most people who don't, that oftentimes I don't trust these media institutions. And by these media institutions, I mean any to tell me the truth in a way that I'm confident in what I'm being told. And so I'm so often seeking alternatives, not from someone who's going to clear it all up for me and tell me what to think, but from somebody who I at least trust is trying to do their best unattached to or unencumbered by any dogma or ideology to figure things out in the most honest way they can. And I'm going to end up finding a person who does that as more valuable, even if they are wrong, even if they're sometimes themselves misled, then I will an institution that I don't believe actually has those good motives to even try and do that in the first place. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate the exchange. Um, Let me try and do this next one. Okay, hold on one second. So this should work to make Barry the next speaker. It might just take a second to um, get rid of the mute. All right, there. Okay, Rob, are you able to? Hello. Let me see if I, I can think get... that's it. Oh, okay, Barry, I think you're there. Go ahead, Barry. Trying to learn, trying to learn, and I really appreciate the platform. This is incredible. So, been following you for the last uh, couple of months and, and listening in, and been excited about this. So, this is great. Congratulations. Um. I'm following up on the previous uh, questions and we were discussing is kind of in the same pathway with the, with the mainstream media, especially the biggest concern I have is uh, I heard you say that, well, okay, so we have some kind of roganism, we have some kind of other platforms that start to give different points of view and we don't want to lean towards censorship, but I was just wondering if there's any kind of like legislative pathway or something that would supersede freedom of the press without infringing on it to hold them accountable for some of the, the um, uh, just the disgusting things, honestly, in my opinion, in the past few years that I've been watching uh, to where that, as you said, people don't trust the press. Um, I can't trust most of the mainstream press and no matter where people fall on the issue of the 2020 election, uh, we just keep getting told a story and it just results in people not being heard. And, and there's not been any kind of discussion about it. Um, we keep getting told there's this uh, from the media. There was there was nothing there. The the courts didn't. And, and so I just wonder if there's something that can happen or is it just going to naturally come about through these kind of platforms that just catch on because of like capitalism? It's just like you got the free market of ideas and this will actually supersede them as long as we don't get censored. Yeah, you know, it's um yeah, I'll 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 tell you a little anecdote that that was illuminating for me. Um 
I, you know, I live in Brazil. I've lived in Brazil for 15 years. I obviously am in the U.S. quite a bit as well. I grew up in the U.S. I'm a U.S. citizen. Um, but I do reporting in Brazil. My husband is a, a member of the Brazilian Congress, so I'm involved in political debates in Brazil and uh, have done a lot of journalism, especially over the last few years that that created a lot of uh, impact and controversy here in Brazil. So I've been very kind of ingrained in in the Brazilian political discourse as I am in, in the U.S. And there's been a couple of controversies over the last couple of months over the question of free speech, very similar to the to one that you just asked, which is people believe there's a lot of disinformation being spread. Some people believe the problem is it's being spread by ordinary citizens on Facebook or by the government on on, on various platforms. Others believe it's spread by the establishment media, much the way that it's spread by the establishment media in the United States. And there's actually a kind of Joe Rogan type podcaster in Brazil who has become Brazil's most popular podcast, much for the same reasons Joe Rogan has. And he recently got censored on YouTube because YouTube judged that one of his shows contained anti-vaccine messaging that YouTube has deemed impermissible. And it caused this debate over what type of speech should be permitted, whether or not free speech should be permitted. And on the left in Brazil, unlike, say, the American left or the European left, where many people believe there should be restrictions on free speech, but nonetheless affirm the value of free speech, people say, I believe in free speech. And then there's the but that typically means they don't really, but at least they affirm their belief in the value. On the Brazilian left, I discovered, having jumped into these controversies and waving my free speech banner, that there's not even a belief in the value of free speech. It's actually almost regarded as like a right-wing or fascist idea. And I think that's becoming more the case in, in the United States. And the argument that they were making was, look, these ideas are so harmful that are being spread that we can't just rely on the marketplace of ideas to help them. We need to have some institution, some superseding body that can regulate what we're hearing and punish the institutions that are spreading horrible falsehoods. And I was amazed to hear this. And my question to them always was, look, of course, free speech entails harms. Every liberty entails harms, right? So in Brazil, like in the United States, the police can't just break into your house because there's some murderer or rapist or pedophile on the loose and they're trying to catch them. We put barriers between the police and our homes and we say you can only enter our homes if the courts give you a warrant to do so, even though we know that that makes it harder for the police to catch really terrible criminals on the loose. We, we, that liberty that we demand, the liberty not to have our houses entered by the police without a judge, entails serious harm, but we nonetheless believe that that right is worth those harms. So of course, free speech is going to sometimes create harm. It means that media outlets are going to get to lie about people. It means some people are going to get to spread harmful falsehoods. It means that extremists or dangerous or authoritarian ideologies can be voiced. So, but then the question becomes in, in which institution do you place your faith and trust 
to be this kind of overlord over our discourse to get rid of those problems and those dangers and, and, and in order to punish falsehoods from being disseminated. And I asked people on the left, do you trust the government to do that? Well, of course not. The government currently in Brazil is a right-wing government, the Bolsonaro government. I definitely don't trust them. Do you trust the courts to do that? No, I don't trust the courts. The courts are full with judges who have been proven corrupt, who put, you know, politicians they didn't like in prison. Do you trust Facebook and Google to do that? No, of course not. Why would I trust billionaires and corporate monopolies to police our discourse? They're not going to... There is no institution that can be trusted with that power. And whatever harms you think are being caused in the marketplace of ideas by allowing free speech, and there definitely are harms, the dangers of empowering any group of humans with the ability to declare which ideas are off limits or on, or permissible, or what kinds of falsehoods rise to the level of being punished, I think those dangers are always going to be much greater than any one specific idea being allowed to proliferate. Obviously, we have things like libel laws, um, where, you know, if I go on my Substack page and decide that I want to accuse a private citizen of being a pedophile without any basis, I can be sued and I should be sued. But, you know, that doesn't give a lot of protection for people who are public figures, who wield public power, and it probably shouldn't. There needs to be a lot of openness to our ability to critique people in public life because they're the ones who wield so much influence. So I guess my answer to your question is, I most definitely view propaganda and false claims circulated primarily by the corporate media as being extremely dangerous, but I view empowering a human institution with the power to police or punish that as being far more dangerous still. Yes, I, I fully agree with you, and I'm glad that you said that. And that's the other part I just wanted to follow up. You mentioned Facebook and Google and Facebook, Google, Amazon, after, you know, a lot of these big tech folks censored and nearly, well, they took down Parler. Um, you know, they've got all these funds they're censoring. So you've got this mainstream media corporation that's just putting out all of these things. But how can we get a voice out there that actually will help to kind of compete with them when they've got such a monopoly on just all of, you know, the, their funding and I guess that's where I'm going with it. So, yes, not to censor them, but to be able to even be out there and be present is difficult because when I share thoughts about what's going on, my family's like, is anybody else in the country hearing this? And, you know, and it's a valid question. So that's just what I want to follow up with is how do we actually get to a point to where we can be big enough to where that we have a voice equal uh, out there to where and we're not being censored or attacked for it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, to me, if you ask me to tell, you know, to identify what I think is the most pressing question, it's the one that you just asked. Obviously, I spend a great deal of my time warning about the dangers of the unconstrained powers of monopolistic platforms like Facebook and Google, particularly when they were, you can say they decided or were forced or coerced, whatever it was, into abandoning their model of being a content neutral platform the way, say, AT&T is, right? Nobody expects AT&T to cut off the phone service of an extremist or somebody with bad ideas because they're a content-neutral platform 
once Facebook and Google abandoned that model and started making decisions about who could and couldn't be heard, in my view, they became very dangerous. So the question is, is it possible to compete with them? Which is another way of saying, are they actually monopolies? Now, there are a lot of people in Congress and a lot of people who are specialists in antitrust law who believe that four companies in particular, Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon, are in different ways classic monopolies, and that antitrust power and the laws of antitrust ought to be used to break them up so that competition becomes viable. I wonder whether competition is possible. And I know that whenever I used to inveigh against the dangers of political censorship by Facebook and Google, what I always used to hear is, ironically, from liberals who suddenly become have become free market absolutists who say, look, they're private corporations. They can do whatever you want, whatever they want. If you don't like how they're censoring, go create your own social media. And the people who created Parler heard that challenge and decided they were going to go do that. And at the very moment that they became the single most downloaded app in America, which was shortly before and then immediately after January 6th, when all kinds of censorship started taking place, including the removal of the sitting president from Twitter and Facebook, Parler got zapped out of existence by Amazon, Apple, and and Google, provoking the question, is competition actually possible? So for me, I kind of believe in this dual track strategy, which is I am definitely an advocate of using the antitrust laws to rein in the power of Facebook and Google. And one of the things I'm hoping to do is to get people on the left and the right to realize that they actually have this in common, that there's a chairwoman of the Federal Trade Commission appointed by Joe Biden, Lena Khan, who's a real antitrust specialist who wants to reign in the power of big tech, not because she wants to use it to censor her political enemies, but because she believes it's unhealthy for a democracy to allow platforms that powerful, that control that much information. And there are people on the right like who like to go on Fox News and get a lot of attention railing against big tech, who nonetheless when it comes time, when the rubber meets the road to do antitrust legislation or to support her, suddenly become partisan and, and, and don't really want to do it. And so figuring out a way to bring this coalition together, people who realize the dangers of big tech, is one really important priority of mine. But then there's this dual track, which is trying to prove that competition is possible, that maybe sites like Rumble can't become as big as YouTube, maybe Substack won't reach as many people as the New York Times does, maybe Colin won't be able to compete with sites that are more repressive, but it can still grow and reach millions of people, maybe tens of millions of people, and at least give an opportunity to have a real impact, sort of like the way Joe Rogan has an audience size similar to the network news and other people on YouTube and other people on more independent platforms are starting to find those audiences as well. So if you ask me what my priority is, it will be the question that you ask. And if you ask me what I'm doing about that, besides just reporting on it and denouncing it, that's exactly what I'm doing on this platform, what I'm doing on Rumble, what I'm doing on Substack, what I'm trying to do in bringing other people 
into these areas is to fortify exactly those platforms that can start to be at least somewhat of a counterweight to these big tech institutions that have way too much power and influence over our discourse. Outstanding. That's what I was wanting to hear addressed. I really appreciate it. And again, thank you for for hosting. Thank you for for participating. It was a, a great exchange. I really enjoyed it. Um, hold on one second. I have uh, just one second. Okay, I think the next person is Jim. Let me see if I've managed to do this correctly. Hey, Glenn, this is Rob. Are you there? Oh, yeah, Rob. You haven't gone yet, right? Yeah, I haven't gone yet. Okay, good. Again, then go ahead. Hey, well, first of all, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And I want to thank you for your fairness and integrity and mostly the depth that you bring to the news. Um, and the country and the world is really lucky to have you. So really appreciate you um, you doing all of this work. Um, Thank you. So the next year will be pretty transformational in terms of the news. I mean, I think most of us on this platform, using this platform today, are probably aware of that. But I want to know more about, like, in your private conversations with many of the people that you know, what you think you see in the next two to three years into the future for new for these kind of platforms, and where these, you know, more traditional news stations nbc msnbc fox all of them and you know where these where these are going to go because two to three years is is really far in in terms of tech it's really far into the future but what are some of the bigger more exciting things you have heard about whether it will or you know it will happen or may just happen yeah um you know that's an important uh and complex question one of the things I've noticed and have kind of learned personally from now being involved in, I guess, in various ways in, in, in media and in the dissemination of information in journalism is a couple of things. One is that large institutions are very kind of parasitical when they see a competitor emerge their instinct at first is to smash it and kill it. And sometimes they succeed, but then if they can't, they try and commandeer and co-opt it. And, you know, when I began writing, it was kind of in the heyday of what were called blogs back then. And at first blogs were kind of ignored and then they were mocked by the New York times and NBC is a bunch of, you know, vulgar, crude, uh, losers writing from their mother's basement, those kind of stereotypes. And then as blogs began to build a bigger and bigger audience and people started migrating away from media, you know, established media to blogs. And the same thing started happening with things like talk radio. You saw these media companies realize that they needed to kind of get into that game and they started creating their own blogs and even hiring bloggers into their media outlets. That's how I became, how I went from being an independent blogger into first Salon and then to the Guardian and then eventually 
uh, at The Intercept. And now I'm back to kind of square one being an independent journalist. So I think that they see their disappearing audience. You know, what you're seeing in media right now is pretty much all sectors of the liberal wing of the corporate media, which is by far the dominant, overwhelming bulk of the corporate media. Virtually all of them are collapsing and eroding and disappearing. This is already happening in 2014 and 2015. Donald Trump saved almost all of them. He became the kind of lightning rod that allowed them to keep fear levels high and, and excitement levels high for people to watch the political show. But it was always a sugar high because that model was already failing. You can go back to 2015 and read about how CNN had no viewers, how every MSNBC host was on the verge of being fired. Trump saved them all, but because it was all dependent on one person, now that he's gone, predictably, they're all collapsing. You see layoffs at the Huffington Post and BuzzFeed and all of these digital media outlets closing, and that's going to continue. And the only, it's kind of like a Silicon Valley model where you have these enormous giants, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, who are thriving and consolidating power and control, and it's rendering all of these other outlets that have the similar ideology essentially worthless, because why do you need to go read Vice to get the same opinions that you can just get every day from New York Times articles and the New York Times op-ed page? And it's giving rise to this independent media ecosystem again, much like blogs did. And you already see these kind of efforts by the New York Times to create their own newsletter model in order to compete with the success of Substack. But I think that what's happening is much more foundational and much more structural in a way that these media outlets can't really reform themselves. They, in, the, in response to the Trump years, they turned themselves into something radically different than they were. Obviously, there was never this golden heyday of media outlets where they were objective and purely factual and apolitical. Human institutions are not capable of that, but they at least did try more than they do now. Now they're just overtly politicized. They're overtly ideological. And they're saying, and they kind of think it's their duty to defeat this political movement that they regard as dangerous. And once they start saying that, they've transformed the character of what they are irretrievably, irreversibly, in a way that I don't think they're ever going to be able to regain the trust, no matter how many structural adjustments they make, like creating newsletters or blogs or whatever. It goes much deeper into the identity of who and what they are. And that's why I think you're seeing this exodus of audience from these legacy media corporations into more independent platforms. And I find that a really encouraging sign, a, a cause of real optimism. But the other lesson that I learned is, and I think I saw this probably best with the Snowden reporting that I did, where in you know 2013, we were able to reveal that the NSA and the United States government with their allies in the UK, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia had a, essentially, without anyone knowing, with no democratic accountability, converted the internet into this weapon of unprecedented mass surveillance. And for a few years, there was this frenzy of 
privacy activism, people demanding better encryption, end-to-end encryption, more control over their communications, a better ability to shield what they were doing from government spying. It was a really encouraging trend. And then all of a sudden, what you saw is these institutions realizing that there was this kind of loss in informational power that they were having in this information war. And they started their own campaign to kind of keep up in the arms race, learning how to break encryption, scaring the population with stories about ISIS and domestic terrorism, and now the threat of right-wing terrorism in the United States. It's always this push and pull. You're not, you're never going to have this new technology like the internet first, then encryption, and now blockchain and crypto that are by definition designed to weaken institutions of authority and empower the population without those institutions of authority trying to find a way to stop that, to either commandeer that power or to put a, a, a roadblock in, in front of those weapons that are being built that are designed to liberate people from their control. And I think that's what you're going to see in media is this kind of constant back and forth. That is why these media companies are so devoted to destroying whatever rises up in competition to them. I was amazed the day that we announced we were going to rumble. It was myself and Tulsi Gabbard and several other independent voices, Bridget, Bridget, Bridget Fetisi, who's a very popular common guest on Joe Rogan. No one had paid attention to rumble. Suddenly it became something that seemed threatening to YouTube and threatening to the ability of mainstream institutions to control information. And there was an article in the Washington Post whipped together in about three days that was designed to make Rumble seem like it was this sewer of misinformation. Why? Because they saw it as a competitor, as a threat to their hegemony over information, and they sought to demean it and to malign it. And they're doing the same with Facebook now, this campaign with this whistleblower, with this whistleblower in quotes, with this idea that Facebook is this pernicious uh, force in society. It's not about breaking Facebook up. It's about taking the incredible power that Facebook has and transferring it to the hands of mainstream media institutions or power centers in Washington. So there's no simple answer of this is the technology that's going to solve our problems. Some people think it's, you know, the emergence of independent media, free speech platforms. I'm a booster of those. Some people think the salvation lies in crypto and blockchain. I'm starting to see more clearly the advantages of those once they start to arrive. But in every instance, institutions of authority don't give up their power without a fight. That's just the nature of how human power functions. And so I don't think there's ever going to be a moment where we can say, oh, we've won this battle or this technology has solved it. I think it's going to be this constant push and pull over every new technology emerges that has the ability to tilt the playing field one way or the other. I love it. Well, uh, I don't have a follow up. I I just want to say uh, first again, a major thank you to you for your time and sharing yourself on these platforms and also to David Sachs and Axel for creating this platform. And probably most importantly, your, I think maybe your husband, David and your kids for sharing you with us. So thanks again. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. They definitely complain occasionally, but in general are super supportive. So, um, and yeah, I mean, that what sold me on, on Colin was the first time they gave me a tour of it. It was weeks after it launched and it was extraordinary, the functionality that it provides. Um, I'm still kind of exploring its features. So yeah, um, David and Axel have built something really amazing and I'm, I'm really honored to be a part of it. So thanks again. Um, let me try and move to the next person. Um, I think my skills are slightly improving in moving from one person to the next. So let me try and see if I can get Jim to speak. Are you there, Jim? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Made it. Thanks. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Good okay. night. Welcome. For- uh, one thing for callers in the queue, I think that we get uh, a message, a, a little banner at the top of the screen saying you've invited to speak and you need to press to accept, but it's a little bit hard to notice. Uh, maybe that happens special in my case because your colleague helped bump me up after I got knocked off the first time, but that's something people might watch for. Uh, my question okay, is, yeah, let me just, let me highlight that. So I think that does happen. So I think the way it works is whoever I see next in the queue, I click on and then they, I, I click invite to speak. So I think you need to accept it in order to, for you to be unmuted and then to speak. That might be part of the problem. So I appreciate that, uh, wisdom. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, and, and then I also think we, I wasn't sure if I had to, unmute myself or wait to be unmuted or both it looks like maybe both so all right i'll, so, I'll yeah, send so, a message i'll send a message to uh to call in after afterwards uh let me make my comment now okay go ahead um so it's really exciting for me as someone that's you know been following you and interested in your perspective and the way you communicate and watching this expand uh, the way that you're uh, increasing and developing the, the way that you reach your audience. And now today we're seeing a, another really exciting step, which is, you know, interacting with you directly like this. Um, my, uh, and now, so now I'm looking at a, uh, you know, I'm in a room with 375 other people and we all have something in common, right? Um, I'm wondering, and a lot of differences. I'm wondering how much you, if you're thinking very much about uh, ways for us to connect with each other, you know, to like maybe get to know each other and to do that thing where we might have some of us who are, you know, who have quite different views, but we share some that are important enough that we want to get to know each other. And, uh, and then ultimately that carries political possibilities, right? Because that's one way that we can unleash power is by finding a common agenda and then, uh, you know, figuring out together how to 
try to advance things. So I guess, so, oh, so you did mention something about there being something like rooms. Are there already, are there rooms now where we can talk with each other? Yeah. So, uh, not necessarily with you there. Is that something I picked up on that you mentioned? Yeah. So, um, you know, let me say uh, one of the things that uh, excited me about this platform is not just how I can use it, but basically how anybody can use it. It's not intended to be a platform where, you know, 12 selected people um, get elevated to a stage and then everyone else listens. It's intended to be an extremely user-friendly platform where anybody can create their own page or their own show, just like I have done. And that is, I think, a really important thing. I mean, if you notice, you know, right now, um, the tone and tenor of the conversation is so much different. Like the energy and the vibe of the dialogue is so distinct from say, if you were to have sat on Twitter for the last 90 minutes, even if you were following people with whom you have a lot of affinity, because the nature of the conversation there doesn't really permit any kind of genuine human communication. It's a very artificial, truncated, stunted form of human interaction, and and it shows in what it produces. Whereas this kind of communication is the way that human beings typically speak in life. It's the way we connect with one another. It's the way we explore differences. And I think it's a lot harder for people to call you hideous names if they have to attach their voice to it, if they're actually listening to you, not as a pixelated screen name, but as a full human being. You can't see me, but you can hear me and the inflection in my voice and I can hear um, and sense the inflection in, in yours. So yeah, every one of you can, and I hope if you want to do, go and create, you know, your own pot, your own podcast, your own show, your own page, where other people who then follow you um, can communicate with you in exactly the ways that we're communicating now. And I absolutely think that, you know, just other than all these kind of more abstract, higher level theories and ideas we've been talking about in terms of the media ecosystem, improving the way human beings communicate with one another by removing our discourse from the worst possible mediums that foster conflict and, and, and contempt and hatred and tribal divisions by design is a really simple but really important way to improve our politics, to improve our society, to improve our discourse. So yeah, this is a, a, a platform where you don't need a team in place of editors and other people. It's designed to be very user-friendly for anybody to create um, a podcast if they want and then start talking to other people in their own communities. All right, let me go next to Cameron. Um, I think you just need to unmute or accept the invitation to speak. All right. Can you hear me, Glenn? Yes, we're extremely efficient now. Nice. I'm very proud of my learning curve. Way to go. Uh, My question is on some of the civil liberties uh, infringements that may or may not be as part of the Rittenhouse case, um, or trial rather. 
on the questioning of the the his 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 right to remain silent. You know, we've spoken so much tonight about you know censorship and and free speech, but we also have that right to remain silent. So I don't know where your sense is of where civil liberties are going in terms of, of uh, defense and, and criminal trials. But if we live in a surveillance state, what constitutes reasonable doubt? What's a right, uh, a fair trial? And, and maybe some of the differences to consider between bench trials and jury trials in the future. Uh, yeah, you know, I've actually one of the I, one of the reasons, honestly, that I've been disturbed about the reaction to the Rittenhouse case is because there have been universal values I've thought for a long time Americans, by virtue of being, and you might want to say, indoctrinated or inculcated in a set of defining values that make us American more or less all agree on regardless of ideology. One of the very first articles I ever wrote when I started writing about politics was in early 2006, this British historian, David Irving, who's kind of notorious for questioning and even denying a lot of demonstrated facts about the Holocaust, has been criminally convicted multiple times, criminally convicted for expressing these thoughts about the Holocaust because in the European countries where he lives, including in Germany, it's actually a crime to question historical orthodoxies about the Holocaust. And I remember there was a trial in 2006. He was sentenced to three years in prison for having spoken about um, the Holocaust in the way that he did. And I wrote an article basically saying, I can't imagine any American who hears this news and reacts with anything other than complete bewilderment and shock and even kind of a certain level of repulsion, even recognizing how repellent his ideology and political views might be over the idea that you can actually go to prison for expressing views that society has deemed off-limits. Prison. And this is just something that is one of those core American values that we all, whether on the right or left or anything in between, have been taught, and I think for good reason, to believe in. That there are these kind of American values that transcend ideology and partisanship. That is something that I also thought was true about the idea that we should not be cheering for the state to be able to imprison somebody for decades unless they give them a fair trial at which evidence is presented that proves their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Like, Just the idea of basic due process and the protections of how the government can imprison a citizen, one of the most severe things it can do to you, probably next to only taking your life, to take away your liberty and put you in a cage, that you actually have to present convincing evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury of your peers that you're actually guilty of the crimes that you're being charged with. And I've watched over the last year and now over the last 10 days as the Rittenhouse trial has gotten attention huge numbers of people demanding his imprisonment and his finding of gu- a finding of guilt who very clearly not only haven't watched any meaningful part of the trial but have absolutely no understanding any basic understanding of the evidence and testimony that have been presented as part of the trial what they know is the political narrative that has been constructed around the Rittenhouse trial and what they ought to be rooting for based on their political identity 
that is completely divorced from any of the safeguards and civil liberties that are supposed to be embedded in a trial. So when you look at something like that, and when you look at what is clearly a gradual or maybe even not so gradual abandonment of a belief in free speech, similar to what I was describing earlier was the case on the Brazilian left. They don't even pretend to believe in free speech. It's something that they regard that expression, free speech, as a hostile slogan. You clearly see that among certainly the younger generation, but possibly even older generations who now believe that there are so many dangers in the world that are so severe that freedom of speech is something that we can no longer permit or tolerate, that if we look at how often there are calls for people who are perceived to be political enemies, whether it's someone like Julian Assange or the people who were part of the riot and the protests on January 6th at the Capitol, to be in prison for long periods of time, not because of the belief that they committed crimes that warrant that punishment, but because of a belief that their ideology is so dangerous that they need to be punished and deserve to be punished. To talk about civil liberties is starting to seem almost archaic to me. You know, the very idea of it is starting to be lost in this, in, in, in favor of this radical polarization where the two sides of the polarized battle, political battle, have so much contempt for one another that they're not even interested in applying this common set of principles and common set of rules any longer based on the idea that all is fair in love and war. And that is definitely something that has become uh, a top concern of mine. No, that's perfect, Glenn. Thank you. And then uh, just a quick follow-up on, you know, when, when you, we spoke about, you know, having put, you know, who, which institution would we like to put our, our faith and trust in? And, you know, I think in, in the form of jury trials specifically, uh, you know, I don't have the exact statistics on the average educational level of a jury, but, you know, I, I kind of have a difficult time believing even that to be fair uh, based on reasonable man or reasonable person constructs. So uh, have a great weekend. Yeah, thank you. Let me just uh, quickly add one thing, which is, you know, I, I referenced earlier the fact that I think the Rittenhouse trial for a lot of people is one of the first times they've really immersed themselves in a judicial proceeding, because if you don't work in a court system, if you're not a lawyer or a judge or a court reporter or somebody who works in, in the the court, you don't often see trials because in many places the, they're they're not permitted to be televised, including federal appeals courts and Supreme Courts and the Supreme Court. The most important courts are usually uh, operating without the vast bulk of the citizenry ever seeing them. And as a lawyer, one of the things I guess I could say is that one of the things I became most frustrated by in the judicial system is that a judge has so much power over how a criminal or civil case proceeds. And once a judge is on the bench long enough, if they didn't already start off as ideological actors, they develop very strong biases about how prosecutors work or how criminal defendants work that I think they wield too much power. And just speaking for myself, having, you know, forget about what the constitution guarantees. If I were charged with the serious crime by the state, I would absolutely rather have a jury of my peers who are coming for the first time into 
a court system and therefore don't really have embedded biases about judicial philosophy deciding my fate than I would somebody who has been entrenched in that system for a very long period of time. And even if they don't realize it, probably has a very large set of um, biases. Thank you very much for that question. Um, Let me take the next question, which is Jenny. So I think if I've done this right, all you should have to do is unmute and you should be able to go. Or if you just accept the invite to speak, that should work as well. I, this is great, Glenn, the setup that you just did, because this is my question. I thought you fleshed out uh, the dichotomy of those who are calling for the abolishment of the police and opening up our jails and prisons and letting everybody go free, that these are the very people who are very comfortable with their ideological and political foes being locked up in a supermax for life just because of what they believe politically. So my question is, have you heard that um, Wisconsin is gearing up? I saw this just before I came in on your show. Wisconsin is gearing up their National Guard, anticipating some protests around the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, sentencing, or I I guess it's just the, the jury's decision. Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's disturbing, but it's also kind of predictable, um, you know, exactly mm-hmm. because the media has made this so polarized, has convinced people that this whole uh, process is not about whether the state convinces a jury whether evidence has been presented beyond a reasonable doubt of guilt, but is actually a political trial. It's about whether this white supremacist terrorist has a right to go and just murder people because he's white and will get away with it. Of course, you're going to be incentivizing people by feeding them that narrative about what this is about to go out onto the streets and be angry and believe that the justice system doesn't work. If he ends up acquitted after being told for a year and a half that he's not just guilty, but he's a monster. He's a terrorist. He's a white supremacist. And a lot of people who still believe that, of course, are going to be enraged if they watch him end up being acquitted without caring about whether or not the rules of our justice system essentially required that outcome. Um, You know, the the other thing that I will say about the whole issue of, um, you know, this common set of values is I actually wrote an article about this yesterday on Substack is about exactly what you just raised, which was. You know, I watched during Russiagate that when the left liberal side of the political spectrum turned into their hero, the former director of the FBI under George Bush and Dick Cheney, Robert Mueller, because they wanted him to come and arrest and imprison all of their political enemies. And to do so, they were doing things like in the Michael Flynn case, cheering for a theory of criminality that for decades on the left had been something that they you were supposed to rail against and inveigh against. The idea specifically that if you do nothing criminal except lie to the FBI, if the FBI shows up at your doorstep and asks you whether or not you did something wrong, 
if all you do is falsely deny to them that you did it, they have the right to turn you into a criminal because lying to the FBI without anything else, just lying to the FBI is a crime for which you can go to prison. This was something that liberal justices like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and John Paul Stevens and many other liberal jurists have long warned is really dangerous. Like, why shouldn't it be a crime, a criminal offense to lie to the FBI? You have the right to remain silent, to not incriminate yourself. Why do you have the obligation to tell the FBI truthful answers if they're trying to turn you into a criminal? And yet those exact theories that the left has long warned were dangerous were the ones that were championed in order to demand that people like Michael Flynn be put into prison or broad readings of the Espionage Act in order to keep Julian Assange in prison. And that is something that's really disturbing. When you watch a political movement get so convinced of its righteousness that they believe their political adversaries are no longer adversaries, but are now criminals who belong in prison and are willing to use theories of criminality that they've long objected to in order to achieve that outcome. That's a political movement that is starting to become very authoritarian. And and I share that concern, obviously, with a lot of passion. Yeah, Kyle's the same age as our youngest son. And um, it was reported today that the first police who got their hands on him claimed that he had been vomiting and shaking and crying throughout the day that they first had him in custody. And then we all saw him crying on the stand. And I was just so disgusted by the people on Twitter who were mocking him as faking. Oh, he's just, he's just making that up. It's just faking. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm so sad about where we're at with our culture because um, to me, it was legit. You know, he was feeling heart, heartfelt emotion. And um, I just think there, but for the grace of God, would potentially be one of my kids. And um, so I, I hope he, he is absolutely allowed to go home and continue with his life. But you know what? Because of the nature of the fight, I feel, feel like he'll always be looking over his shoulder, you know, wondering which crazy leftist is going to come try and punk him. Yeah, you know, I just, I, I guess, you know, I mean, what I would say is that that reaction to him crying on the stand, the instant mockery of it, he was mocked by LeBron James, you know, someone who has 50 million Twitter followers was mocking, you know, an 18 year old um, claiming that he was crying theatrically and the lack of empathy needed to believe that, right? Like, I think it's incredibly reasonable, perfectly reasonable for someone to say that it's not a very smart thing to do to take an AR-15 and just insinuate yourself into a protest that you know is likely to be hostile at the age of 17 without any police training, without the training needed to keep the public safety. Though that's not a very wise thing to do, that we don't want to encourage people to be doing that on their own. If someone thinks that I think it's a reasonable view, even if it's not necessarily my own. But no matter what else is true, if you're a 17-year-old and you've gone through what he's gone through, think about it. He shot three people, killing two of them. He is facing multiple counts of murder, which if he's found guilty on, he's certain to go to prison at the age of 18 for the next several decades, if not the rest of his life, the idea 
that you would mock or disbelieve someone under that level of distress crying requires such a lack of empathy and compassion and just basic humanity, no matter your views of him, that I agree it was such a disturbing expression of where we are as a culture and where we are as a society that if somebody has the wrong ideology, we just instantly dehumanize them into somebody that we believe is a sociopath. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, somebody said, and I think it's true, that if he had been killed that night by whoever, we never would have noticed. His name would have been on a list of the many people who were killed during 2020. But the media wouldn't have covered it. He would have just been a dead conservative kid who was trying to help out that business owner, you know. But because he had the audacity to defend himself and inadvertently kill two leftists, you know, one of them was a pedophile. Um, For that, he's, you know, he's just the other. He's the other. And he's being treated as such. And I, this is so far beneath the American ideal that I, I, I do. I get sickened when I watch it. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Let me just, you know, add just one thing, which is, um, you know, I regard the whole Kyle Rittenhouse thing as a horrible tragedy. You know, I think clearly the person who initiated the hostilities, Joseph Rosenbaum was obviously mentally unwell. Um, you know, whatever he did in his life, you know, I don't think anyone deserves to be deserves to be gunned down in the street. That's not the way we administer justice. But, you know, clearly he was unwell and unstable. He had just been released from a psychiatric hospital. Um, and you can just tell by his behavior that he was seeking out confrontation. But the next two people who Kyle Rittenhouse shot, one of whom he one of whom he wounded, the other of whom he killed, we're not necessarily acting in any kind of a, cult, uh, a, a blameworthy manner. It's very possible that they perceived Kyle Rittenhouse and the chaos of what was going on to be the kind of malicious, ideologically motivated, active shooter that the media ended up claiming that he was and believed that they were essentially trying to neutralize him or to stop him from killing people in order to protect others. They might have been acting with very noble motives, risking their lives, and in the case of one of them, losing their life in order to protect other people. So I don't look at the people that he shot as being evil leftists or people who got what was coming to them or anything like that. I look at the whole thing as a horrible tragedy. And I think if anyone is to blame for that series of events, it was Joseph Rosenbaum. Had he not through his mental instability, initiated this conflict where Kyle Rittenhouse felt compelled in the first instance to shoot him in self-defense. I don't think any of those other shootings would have happened because I think it's very clear that Kyle Rittenhouse was not there looking indiscriminately to shoot people. As we started off by saying, the only people he shot are people who, for whatever their motives might have been, including good ones, took actions that made him feel like they were a threat to him. All right, let me take a couple of more questions. We're coming up on the two-hour mark. Um, this has been super uh, enervating and energizing, um, but we'll have a lot more opportunities to do it. So 
uh, just for the sake of my own energy and uh, not being killed by my own family. Let me just try and take one or two more and then we'll end it for tonight. And I apologize to anybody who I might have inadvertently booted out of line. Um, if I did that, shoot me a message and I'll make sure to elevate you to the front of the line the next time that we do this in a few days. So let me try the next person. Um, should be Andrew, if you can unmute yourself, you should be able to go. Hey, Glenn. <laughs> hey, I guess you can hear me, right? Yes. Hey, yeah, this is really refreshing. I've been the guy who's been posting video clips of you mainly talking with Howard Kurtz on Twitter. And I've always, uh, you've always had great things to say. And I've always uh, dreaded the, the responses you get on the video. <laughs> mainly are not about what you say, but basically that you're on Fox or whatever. So this is very, <laughs> very refreshing. Yeah, anybody uh, who enters my timeline regularly, as you do with those clips, which I really appreciate, gets a little bit of the taste of the response yeah. I get. So I appreciate your stepping into the war zone to do that. Yeah, and of course, uh, Camille Foster, the other guy, you know, he does, he's similar to you, replies to some of these people who are obviously bad faith actors. And I kind of remind for y'all to uh, going through this. And I, by the way, before I make my comment, I hope one of your next episodes is about your book, uh, Securing Democracy, because of what you've been doing in Brazil and uh, a very young democracy we've observed would be very interesting, I think, to a lot of people. Um, the Basically, you know, there's states like Texas and Florida that have been pushing back against the federal government on border issues and also big tech censorship. Um, I, I don't know if you saw Michael Moynihan's vice news piece when he went down to Texas talking to Texas voters. And, and the thing is that there's something obviously where the federal government is not really addressing the needs or the concerns of people in border states. And, you know, and so you, I think at some point when you have like 30 states controlled by Republican legislatures, that there's going to be some pushback from the individual states on federal overreach. I don't I don't have very much of a feel on this, but I was wondering if you had, you know, when you're talking about just when you talk about the federal government, you know, is it going to be any way maybe the states are trying to constrain what the federal government's trying to do? Um, now, we're in such a polarized situation right now politically. It may not happen, but I was wondering if you had any insights on that in terms of, you know, states pushing back on what the federal government is doing in this regard. Yeah, you know, this is a tension that has obviously existed since the beginning of the republic is what is going to be the relationship between the centralized right. federal government that obviously people who had just waged a war against a centralized monarch were very wary of reconstructing versus the ability of people in a smaller community of states in order to have sovereignty over their own lives. And clearly over the past, let's say six to seven decades, there has been a significant shift in power from local communities and municipalities, which once decided a lot of things in our lives, which now have almost no control or power over how we live, maybe some parking and zoning rules and not much else beyond that. And even states, which have increasingly been subjected to the supreme power of the federal government, increasingly are deciding fewer and fewer things about how we live at, in lieu of an increasingly powerful federal government that is empowered almost in all areas under the Commerce Clause and other legal doctrines that have grown. And I worry about that in two ways. One is I think that 
the more distant our rulers seem, the less influence we seem to have over them, the less in common we believe we have with them, the less credibility we're going to believe they have to make decisions about our lives, the more resentment will be fostered. You know, I think that was one of the things that drove the vote for Brexit in the United Kingdom was it's one thing for people in Northern England to be ruled by elites who went to Oxbridge or Oxbridge and Oxford and Cambridge in London. It's another thing entirely to be ruled by Eurocrats who are in Brussels over whom they have no real democratic accountability. And I think a lot of the tension in our country is about the fact that there are different cultures and different political ideologies that vary from community to community and state to state. And it seems like those are being run roughshod over in, right. in, in lieu of this kind of homogenized, federalized approach. The other thing I think is true is what you alluded to, which is the more polarized we become, the more dangerous that becomes. The more of a cultural difference we have with one another, the more difficult it is for people to submit to this kind of distant, homogenized authority. And maybe one of the ways that we can escape polarization is to create different states and re-empower states to say, in this state, we're going to choose to live our lives in, in accordance with this overall ideology. And in this state, we're going to have a different ideology and you can pick and choose which state to live in because as American citizens, we're entitled to the freedom of interstate travel. That may be one way out of this incredibly entrenched and increasingly hostile polarization. But that definitely brings a lot of difficulties with it. Um, but I always in general think right. it's better if people's rulers are closer to them rather than more distant. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know, there's been a kind of a movement for, you know, calling a convention of the states under Article 5. I don't know how much it's progressed, but it seems like there, at some point something's going to have to break. And I definitely agree with what you said. Hey, I mean, to basically decide what they want to do. So. But, hey, really appreciate it, Glenn. This is a great platform and I'm really glad you started this. Thank, thank you, Andrew. Thank you for the great video clips you do on Sunday and uh, for dropping by. I really appreciate I hope to hear, I hope to hear you on the fifth. Yeah, I hope to hear you on the fifth column podcast again, too. So, yeah, I'll definitely get back on there. Have a good evening. Thanks very much. All right. So, let me take this uh, last uh, call, which is from Stephen. I see there are other people in the queue. Um, I apologize. Uh, we have to end at some point. Um, like I said, if I inadvertently didn't get to you, please let me know and I'll make sure I get to you for the next time. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and take the next caller who is uh, Steven. So if you unmute yourself, I, I should be able to hear you. Uh, hey, Glenn. Uh, thanks for taking so much time tonight. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm a dad of two kids, so I know family time is important. So I'll try to make this quick. Um, but, uh, you know, as a dad, my, my main concern, um, over the last uh, year or two has just been this really fragile, you know, experiment of a uh, liberal, liberal democracy that we have and a pluralistic society. And some of the stuff that we're seeing is, um, pretty frightening. And you've been able to kind of eloquently put that out there. Um, so I wanted to hit on a, like a thread you mentioned before, kind of this roganization of, um, you know, the media landscape. 
Uh, and you had talked about like the two options of either reforming institutions or setting up kind of these parallel institutions that could be better for, you know, truth making and kind of making sense. And uh, I wondered if you, you know, on those two uh, possibilities, you know, I know a lot of these institutions like the New York Times, like Washington Post, they run on these, what used to be ad models um, for revenue, but now are based more on subscriber. And, you know, I noticed that even now, you know, in reaction to kind of this great awakening, there's almost like a reaction of awakening. And we're seeing it in a lot of places, um, with the growth of Substack, with the, you know, podcast ecosystem. You even see like at the New York Times, they brought on um, John McWhorter um, as a opinion columnist, which I think was kind of surprising for a lot of people after they fired, you know, uh, you know, Barry and Bennett and McNeil and all that stuff. So I was wondering, do you think there's still a possibility of that reform happening because those institutions are going to go where the money is? Or do you think that, you know, the, the ideology is so embedded within the institution that they're not even going to be able to see that financial incentive if there is a growing kind of appetite for a, a more nuanced and more diverse, um, you know, thought opinion? Um, and then the second question, just kind of a, a tangent, and maybe it's outside of your wheelhouse, but there was this news about the University of Austin. I don't know if you came across it. I've even been critical of Barry in the past. I saw some stuff you wrote a while back, but just wanted your take on it. If you thought it was kind of uh, some of the grift that <laughs> some people on Twitter thought, or if you think it has a real chance at being uh, a parallel institution that could kind of push back on some of the forces that are, uh, you know, calling uh, diversity of thought and free speech. So that's all I got for you tonight. Thanks. Yeah, those are those are two, two, two great questions. Um, and, you know, I, th I see them as very related. I'll just answer the second part about this new University of Austin, which is some of you might not have heard. Uh, there was an announcement this week that a group of people who identify more as independent thinkers, um, whose views have been unwelcome in certain institutions, although welcomed in plenty of others, are people, a lot of whom, most of whom have, have, have large platforms, um, Barry Weiss became the lightning rod for it, as she often does, even though she was just one of many names associated with it, uh, decided they were going to launch a new university called the University of Austin, designed clearly as a kind of answer to the growing leftist and woke repression on campuses, this kind of intolerance for ideas that deviate from leftism. Um, you know, I think it's very difficult to put together an institution like that. Um, I think the intentions behind it are authentic and genuine. None of the people involved need a new job. Um, the mockery for it, I think, was very predictable. Anything new gets mocked. Um, the people involved are polarizing, and a lot of the mockery came from there. Personally, I think that all other things being equal, people who uh, sit around and complain about things um, can be really valuable. But people who decide that they're actually going to try and create a new institution to solve the problems that they're complaining about are doing something commendable. Not everybody can do that. But I think putting their ideas out there and creating an institution designed to embody the values they claim that they believe in is something that inherently ought to be applauded. I have a lot of objections to a lot of the people who are involved. I've expressed criticisms of many of them. But We'll see what this institution turns into and how true it is to its values. But I think it's the byproduct of a lot of what we were just been discussing over the past couple of hours, which is the perception that mainstream institutions no longer tolerate 
a divergent range of views and people are seeking out independent platforms or creating their own because they believe that's the only way that that kind of inquiry, that kind of free ranging inquiry can actually happen. And the more people devoted to those ideas, uh, the better in general. Um, as far as you know, the media platforms are concerned, I think it's so fascinating because for a long time, for most of the last, say, century, the model of media, the monetized model of media was an advertising one. So the New York Times and the Washington Post and NBC News would rely on revenue from large corporations, Ford Motor Company or General Dynamics or Boeing or Exxon in order to advertise in their newspapers. And the job of those papers was to attract as many viewers as possible who would see those ads. And the critique always was that that, and it was often a leftist critique, was that that limited the range of views that those media outlets could air because they could only air views that didn't offend those advertisers. So if the New York Times is relying heavily on Exxon, they're not going to be able to run a lot of journalism critical of the fossil fuel industry because they don't want to offend their corporate advertisers. I never found that view particularly persuasive um, because the reality is when you rely on an advertising model, you have so many different advertisers, so many different corporate interests that you're not really that concerned about offending anyone in particular. It is probably true that it creates a kind of general climate of mainstream thought and mainstream ideology. You're unlikely, for example, to have a socialist or a communist newspaper working to overthrow the capitalist order, having lots of corporate advertisers. So it's not like it doesn't have any effect. It has an effect, but I think it tends to be kind of minimal. It allows newspapers and did allow newspapers to not have a limitless range of views, but to at least have some diversity of thought because those corporations were really looking to reach as many people as possible and knew that that would happen if both Democrats and Republicans or conservatives or liberals were heard. So I never found that model to be that repressive, even though it often was depicted as such. Then there's an alternative model, which I actually used when I created uh, the media outlet where I worked for eight years after I left The Guardian in 2013, The Intercept, which is to rely on billionaire funding. And there's a lot of critiques about that model as well. I remember when we launched The Intercept, people said, well, you're relying on the funding of a billionaire, the founder of eBay, Pierre Abidiar. And so you're essentially going to be captive to whatever his ideology was. And that also turned out not to be true. The arrangement with Pierre Amidiar was, you'll fund our news outlet, but we'll have no ability to interfere in our editorial process. He kept his word, and the reality was that he had no effect on the ideology of The Intercept. Now, again, there's subtleties to that. Um, the people who run The Intercept know that they're reliant on a billionaire. They know what that billionaire's political ideology is because he's on Twitter, he's out in the world giving interviews and speeches. And they're probably subconsciously, if not consciously, unwilling to publish things that they believe will offend him out of fear that they'll lose that funding. So it, too, can have a repressive effect, but not nearly what the caricature suggests, that every day they wake up and 
go to work to serve the political ideology of Pierre Amidiar, having worked in an institution funded by a billionaire, that's just not the way it works. For a long time, people thought the purest model was the one that these large media outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal are now relying upon, which is subscriber model. You get basically are funded by your donors. This is actually a model that saved The Guardian. When I was at The Guardian, The Guardian was going bankrupt. They had relied on a trust that had been in place for 150 years. It was becoming depleted. And then they started asking their readers to donate to them and then subscribe. And they now make many millions of dollars a year, like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Those have become very profitable models. That was always considered the purest model because you rely on your readers, not on billionaires or corporations. And yet I think in a lot of ways that has become the most repressive model. If you look at who reads the New York Times, overwhelmingly, it used to be the paper of record. It's now the paper of the Democratic Party. Something like 91% of people who say they get their news primarily from the New York Times are Democrats. The Guardian, probably even more so. Only people on the liberal left are reading The Guardian. The same with The Washington Post, which became basically an anti-Trump outpost from 2016 until 2020 and still is. And that means that if you're an executive of The New York Times or The Washington Post or The Guardian, you do know that you cannot publish many articles if you can publish any that alienate the ideology of your ideologically homogenized readership. They really have become captive to a political ideology. And I know people who work in those institutions and the censorship that I hear that takes place is about that very fact that they know that their mission and the only way they can remain profitable is by not alienating the people who are paying their salaries who are people who really just want to hear an ideological viewpoint. I once, I had a friend who was a host of a primetime show on one of the two liberal cable outlets. I won't indicate which, CNN or MSNBC. And I remember he once told me that when you're a host of a cable show, you don't just get show by show ratings, you get segment by segment ratings. And he once told me that if he ever put on a guest who was critical of the Democratic Party or liberal leaders like Nancy Pelosi or Barack Obama, he could see the audience collapse. They would just start changing the channels, hitting the remote, moving away from him. And it created a a prison, like almost like a punishment system, like a Pavlovian incentive scheme for him never to air any criticism of the Democratic Party because his lucrative job depended upon those people staying watching and not tuning away. And I think a lot of them have become prison, imprisoned by and captive to this highly ideological audience they purposely have cultivated. And one of the things I've always tried to do in my writing career, and I think have always done, is had a very ideologically heterodox and mixed uh, audience. Obviously, I began with a lot of people on the left applauding what I was doing because I was highly critical of George Bush and Dick Cheney and the war on terror. But even then, there were a lot of libertarians who felt the same, and they were always part of my readership from the beginning. I was able to keep a large audience, and I began, a, uh, began being a critic of the Obama administration. 
once I began as being a skeptic of Russiagate and the growing authoritarianism and American liberalism, I obviously developed a broader audience of people on the right as well. And so I have a very ideological, ideologically mixed group of people who are my readers and subscribers. And I think that what they want from me is what I said earlier, people want when they listen to Joe Rogan, which is not having a particular ideological viewpoint validated or a particular partisan outlook flattered. They just want to know that whatever it is that I'm writing, whatever it is that I'm saying is my best and most honest way of trying to convey to them how I see the world, whether they agree with it or not, whether it affirms or validates their preconceived views of the world, what they want is to be challenged, what they want is to have evidence presented to them by someone that they at least trust, isn't always going to tell them what they want to hear or what they believe, but that is their is someone who's free and independent and able to be honest, even if it means sometimes upsetting their readers. And I think that is the sweet spot. That is the model that can restore trust in journalism is not being reliant on any one particular ideology or faction. You can make money doing that for sure. There are profitable ways of doing that. Like the New York times is proving by making a lot of money serving American liberalism. I don't think it's going very far in restoring trust in journalism, I think it's doing the opposite. It's eroding it. I think the way to restore faith and trust in journalism is by having voices that people trust not to tell them what they believe or agree with, but that is the actual view they honestly hold and they're doing their best to figure out the world in the most honest way possible. So on that note, I want to really thank everybody for joining my debut show um i know it was slightly rough on the technical level occasionally which was all my fault and not the fault of the app i was just figuring out how this functions it will run much more smoothly the next time i promise thank you to everybody who asked questions the questions were uniformly outstanding and thought-provoking and made my job really easy easy and in having a compelling discussion that most of you stuck around for the entire two hours for i'm more excited than ever by this app um, I will definitely keep using it, not necessarily for two hour shows. Sometimes it'll be 20 minutes if I want to sound off on something. I love the interactive feature. I think that's a really important part that I look forward to continuing to use. And I hope uh, this app continues to grow and more and more people use it because I think this kind of discourse is more important than ever. So I hope everyone has a great evening. Thank you to everybody for listening. Thanks. Okay, good night.